Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. It is March the 28th, 2010, and we are starting tonight on Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, and the verse reads, False lips are an abomination to Hashem, but those who act in faith are his desire. False lips are an abomination to Hashem, but those who act in faith are his desire. And as we generally always do, our first step is to ask, what are the questions? What questions would we ask ourselves around this verse before we try to go to answers? to that we would the questions we would need to answer in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to teach us through this verse. It's easy sometimes to assume when we first read the words, oh yeah, that's very obvious, except that when we're really drilled into or when we really drill into asking ourselves, well what does this word mean and that word mean and how does that exactly work, then it's not necessarily so clear. So by articulating the questions and the answers around that, it forces us to recognize where any vague or fuzzy spots might be uh, so that we can make sure that we have a very clear understanding. So, false lips are an abomination to Hashem, but those who act in faith are his desire. So, Naomi, you've asked why false lips are an abomination and what is an act of faith. Very good. So, it says false lips are an abomination. Why is that? And we could also ask, well, what are false lips and what is an abomination to Hashem? What does that phrase imply? And then the second half, as you so appropriately indicated, uh, it refers to an act of faith. So what is that? Those who act in faith, uh, or rather it refers to acting in faith, not, a, not the verb or the, the noun, but a, uh, an action of those who act in faith or his desire, what does that mean? Uh, and, and I'll add one more thing, and that is when it says his desire, meaning God's desire, uh, well, God doesn't have emotions like we do, so what is the verse trying to get at? So what I would like to do is give you Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation uh, of this verse. As I mentioned before, virtually everything I've learned about Proverbs I learned from Rabbi Moskowitz. Uh, he's been studying this book for decades. So we'll start with false lips. False lips would be those that speak things that aren't true. So it's a metaphor for untruth. I mean, the lips themselves aren't false. You know, people have them. But it's a metaphor for uh, things that are not true. Okay, so then what is an abomination to Hashem? And Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that an abomination of Hashem, uh, abomination of Hashem, not to Hashem, I think I said earlier, abomination of Hashem, uh, means something deep. Uh, and the verse reads, false lips are an abomination to Hashem. 
So abomination here means something very deep. Uh, and Rabbi Moskowitz suggests it's something where you don't notice the consequences clearly, but the results are very, very bad. And when the verse at the end reads his desire, that's referring to the opposite, something very beneficial. So we have the first half talking about something that's very bad, and the second half talking about something that's very beneficial or very positive. Now, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, the word amuna, uh, or amuna, which is, which is translated in the verse as faith, means truth. And he wants to suggest like this. He wants to say that the basic cure for all of our wrong views of life is truth. I mean, that's the basic foundation of everything that we're talking about, really, in our whole study of Mishle, our, our study of Torah. So, if a person uh, is guided by truth, that is God's will. It is God's will that a person be guided by truth. But when a person is guided by falsehood, that's an abomination. Why? Because it's the destruction of the person. It, it will ultimately lead to their destruction. Now, in this context, I'd like to suggest that abomination is not how we might normally think of that word. Uh, at least in the West, we tend to think of that sometimes as something that causes disgust or hatred. But rather, in this context, it seems that the abomination of an aspect of it has to do with God not desiring the destruction of his creation. Instead, his desire is the opposite. And those who are guided by truth are his desire. So, it's not like, we, you know, we might look at something and we say, ooh, that's icky, that's awful, that's you know, an abomination, that's not the sense that I understand that this verse is getting at. The sense of an abomination is, as we mentioned earlier, um, something where you don't see the consequences clearly, but the result is very, very bad. And false lips are an abomination to Hashem because they will ultimately result in the destruction of the individual. And God does not, it's my understanding, God does not want to see his creation uh, destroy itself. Uh, that's, that's not his desire, if we can put that in human terms. That's not his desire uh, for the creation. Rabbi Moskowitz went on to say uh, that without truth, you have nothing. With truth, you can deal with things. I mean, the truth is the basic foundation of everything that we do. And we have to have that to be successful in the world of Torah. The truth allows you to see reality and deal with it. It allows you to make good decisions. It allows you to take into account consequences. It allows you to analyze a situation and figure out exactly what's going on. All those kinds of things. That's what truth allows you to do. 
So the basic foundation of everything is honesty in your view of life. And that, I would say, is one of the key things that it really is, is really required of the Torah life, is the willingness to uh, apply intellectual honesty to the situations that we encounter. It's honesty in our view of life. If we have an emotion that takes over and clouds our ability to honestly view our lives, that can result in our failure. So, uh, the truth has to be real so that we live by it. And Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting, uh, saying that's what the second half of the verse tells us. And you'll note that, interestingly, it refers to those who act in faith. The second half says, those who act in faith are his desire. It does not say those who see the truth. Because the truth has to be so real to us that we act on it. It has to be so real that it causes us to live by it. Now, in the study of Proverbs and in the study of the self and in our own character development, I'll suggest that the character trait of intellectual honesty is critical we have to be able to look at ourselves honestly and honestly see how we view the world. Uh, we have to be able to see how our emotions color that view. Uh, and that honesty allows us to see the truth, the reality that actually exists. And then we can take realistic steps to improve ourselves. If we try to pretend that we're at some level that we're not, uh, or that uh, you know we have a, uh, let's say a negative character trait, but we're going to pretend that we don't. That emotion that is clouding our view is going to then uh, cloud our ability to see reality. So what we have to do is be able to honestly look at ourselves and view ourselves realistically and recognize, okay, you know, I messed up on that situation or I didn't see this clearly, or, wow, that didn't turn out the way I thought, let me go back and analyze and see where I made a mistake, and accept that, you know, we're not perfect, we're, we're on a journey here, we're, we're working on it, uh, we're working on perfecting our character and, and perfecting our souls, but we have to view ourselves honestly where we are. So the verse seems to be talking about Hashem's desire for man and the opposite. Hashem's desire for man is to operate in accordance with the truth. Um, now, we, I think we've touched on this in this class before, that sometimes people get hung up on the idea of God's will. You know, they want to know what God's will for their life is. And oftentimes I think uh, they get that connected to what their occupation is, or where they should live, or, or you know, a particular outcome in a particular situation. God's will is that we see the truth, and that we use our minds to analyze situations and operate rationally. That is His will. I, I 
my understanding after you know a couple of uh, decades of, of being involved in, in learning about Torah and the Torah approach is it's not like there's this magic picture of what my life should look like you know that I should be a doctor I should be a lawyer I should be a, uh, a plumber I should uh, be this or that and I should live in this place and you know it's not that kind of a picture it's that I should be actively engaged in analyzing pros and cons and using my mind to actively make decisions about what my life should look like in each of those areas. And as new situations arise, then I analyze those. And when I do that, then I'm operating in the way that God intended for me to operate. That leads us on the path to growth. We see the truth, we work on our character traits, we objectively see how our emotions will block our view of reality, and then we take rational steps to remove those blockages. Uh, we don't spend a, a bunch of time you know, beating ourselves up over it, we just look at it realistically, much like uh, a computer programmer who writes a program uh, looks at it. You know, No one that I've known who writes computer programs, including my own experience with it, uh, generally gets the program right the first time. You know, you write a whole bunch of steps of computer code, and then you run it, and it doesn't work. So you go back over the code, one step at a time, looking at each line, trying to figure out, okay, where's my mistake? And then, oh, there it is, it's in line 375, I wrote this character wrong, or I forgot a quote mark, or I used the wrong variable name, or whatever it might be. And you fix that, and you go around it again, maybe you get a different mistake. And then you fix that, and you keep going over it until you get the computer program to run right. The computer programmer doesn't generally sit there and beat himself up, uh, because, you know, thinking, oh, I'm such a terrible programmer, why didn't I get that right the first time? They just go back over the code until they figure out where the error is. And that's the process that we use when we go back over our actions and look at a situation and say, hmm, that didn't work out so well. What could I have done differently? What step did I miss? What emotion did I let cloud my view of reality? And if so, then once I identify that, what can I do to fix that so that that mistake doesn't happen again? And that's taking rational steps to remove the blockages. So this verse is showing us Hashem's desire for man and the opposite of that which is considered an abomination to Hashem because it ultimately leads to man's destruction. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, I'll take no response as a no. So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 23. And the verse reads, A clever man, in Hebrew that's a room, a clever man hides knowledge, and the heart of the fool announces his foolishness. A clever man hides knowledge, and the heart of the fool announces his foolishness. So, what would you say the questions are? Any thoughts?
Okay, very good. Uh, how does a clever man hide his knowledge? And why would he do that? And maybe we should ask, well, what's a clever man? When we talk about clever, what does that mean? And, and I see, that, yeah, your translation probably says, sounds like it says conceals knowledge. Uh, same thing. Clever man hides or conceals knowledge. And why should he do that? And the second half, what does it mean that the heart of the fool announces his foolishness? And then if we look at the verse overall, what does one half of the verse have to do with the other half? Um, I mean, first part seems to be talking about a clever man and he hides knowledge. Second part seems to be talking about a fool who announces his foolishness. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that clever is where you have to take into consideration certain thoughts. Uh, the, the word again in the Hebrew for clever is arum. And he said the snake in the Garden of Eden was arum. He understood how Adam and Eve made decisions because he understood the way they operated. So arum means that you understand the way people think. And you can use that knowledge for good or evil. And a room, a clever person, knows when to give off knowledge. He also knows when to keep it to himself, when to hide it or conceal it. Because, as you probably know from your own experience, there are times when it's wise to speak, and there are times when it is wise not to speak. There are definitely some times when it is better to hold back from speaking everything that you know in a particular circumstance. The fool, in this case, doesn't understand how people think or how their minds work. And because he doesn't have the understanding of how people work, his subsequent actions announce his foolishness to others. People can see, oh, look, here's a guy that doesn't operate with a whole lot of intelligence. Now, it says the heart of the fool, and as we've discussed in the past, um, when, when this book was written, the term heart referred to the mind. So, the mind of the fool announces his foolishness, meaning he doesn't have the understanding, uh, the wisdom, the insight of knowing how uh, other people think or how their minds work. So... He just operates without that knowledge in a foolish way, and his actions that come out of that send a very clear message to everybody around, this guy's not very wise. Uh, he's pretty foolish. So people around can see that he doesn't operate with intelligence, so that, in essence, announces his foolishness to everyone else. Okay? Are we clear so far? Okay. Now, the Chacham, the wise person, only sees uh, consequences based on actions. In other words, 
uh, for example, if you swim in a riptide, uh, you can get pulled under. But it is a deeper thing to make a decision based on someone else's personality. The wise person sees consequences of various actions, but this seems to be taking it a step deeper to talk about making a decision based on another person's personality. The Arun, in this case the clever man in our verse, has an insight that a hacham, a wise person, doesn't have. In other words, the, the Arun, the clever man, is a further development from a wise person. It's he has insight into the way people think. He also sees consequences and everything like that, but he has further insight into their personalities and how they think, and he brings that to bear into a situation. Um, now, the, the Haham doesn't necessarily have that knowledge, so he could, in fact, give off information that could be harmful. So Rabbi Moskowitz asks the question, well, if that's the case, what's the difference between him and a fool in the second half of the verse? And he wants to say like this. He wants to say that the hacham, the wise person, knows when to keep his mouth closed. He knows when he doesn't have the knowledge the fool doesn't know when to keep quiet. So his foolishness is, in essence, announced publicly. So in summary, our verse is contrasting the clever man, the one who understands both consequences and how people think, how their minds work, versus contrasting that person with the fool whose mind doesn't understand these things and so his actions announce to everyone around him that he's foolish. Okay, any questions on that verse? The clever man versus the fool. Okay, so let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12 verse 24 and it reads the hand of the diligent will rule but deceit will lead to payment of tribute the hand of the diligent will rule but deceit will lead to payment of tribute okay and the art scroll translation on the last part reads deceit will melt so their, their translation is, the hand of the diligent will rule, but deceit will melt. So what kind of questions could we ask ourselves around that verse? The hand of the diligent will rule, but deceit will lead to payment of tribute. Any ideas about questions? Okay, so you've asked a uh, question, uh, what is ruling? Okay, 
in, in this case, good. So the, so the hand of the diligent will rule. What are they ruling? And in fact, what is the hand of the diligent? I mean, that's an interesting phrase, and but we'd want to try to define what that actually means. And what are they ruling over? And then, what is payment of tribute? Um, if we go down that road, and why does deceit lead to that? Or, if we take the Art Scroll translation, as you pointed out, Naomi, uh, how will deceit melt? How does that work when it says deceit will melt? So, Rashi explains that the diligent are just people. Just as in justice, not just as in only. Uh, but that, that uh, the diligent are just. And the Rabag explains that they become wealthy through industriousness and righteousness. So the diligent here are those that act in, uh, let's say, in a business setting by working out honest plans and then putting them into action. And according to the Ralbag, in doing that, they gain power. Now we can see how that happens in the real world. People who are able to accumulate wealth in business through righteous and honest means do have a certain amount of power in a community. Not because they're necessarily elected to a particular office or not necessarily because they have any official power, but they're able to operate in a powerful way within the world because of their wealth and their reputation. People afford certain respect to people like that. They look up to them for leadership. And so those people, in effect, rule. They have the ability to uh, not in a formal political way necessarily rule over a community, but they in fact are um, given uh, deference by others, and so they have a certain amount of power uh, within the community. Now, what is payment of tribute? Payment of tribute is a payment from one person or some group of people or an entity, it could be even a country, to another in order to, or in a way that indicates a certain level of dependence. So, uh, a, um, if a king came in and conquered another land, that other land might have to pay tribute to the king, send money to him. Uh, so there's a certain uh, a certain level of dependence that is implied by the payment of tribute. Um, and so what happens uh, is that a, when you operate through deceit, you're operating not in accordance with reality. You're doing something false. And almost by definition, because it's operating not in accordance with reality, eventually that deceit is going to be found out. And so a person is not going to be successful in the long run by doing things deceitfully. 
Now we just showed in the first half that the hand of the diligent will rule. I mean, they got their wealth through honest means, through working hard, through righteousness, through honesty, integrity, and the community, people recognize that. And so they end up in a powerful position. People who try to do things by cheating and falsehood and swindling and schemes like that eventually get found out. And when, so they will not be successful and they will end up uh, eventually becoming subservient to those whose power does last, which would be the hand of the diligent. And what does it mean when, in Art Scrolls translation, that deceit will melt? Well, again, because the wicked person is acting with deceit against reality, then I'll submit that it will eventually become known and his influence or power will melt away. It just won't last. And according to the Malbum, someone like that will eventually become subservient to the diligent because their power will last. So the deceitful will end up having to uh, pay tribute to the diligent they will, their power will melt away and the diligent, uh, the, the power of the diligent will rule. So the verse seems to be telling us about the consequences of how you work. If you work diligently with industriousness and righteousness, then you'll end up with power. But the wicked who operate with deceit, their power will eventually melt away or they'll be paying tribute to others who are diligent. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Very interesting verse. Not that they all aren't interesting, but uh, I think this one is particularly applicable of today's times. And it reads like this. When there is worry in a man's heart, he should cast it down, and a good word will make it cheerful. When there is worry in a man's heart, he should cast it down, and a good word will make it cheerful. The art scroll reads just a little bit differently. Uh, it reads along the lines of when there is worry in a man's heart, uh, he should suppress it and, uh, and let a good thing convert it to gladness. So, let's begin as always and ask, what are the questions? When there is worry in a man's heart, he should cast it down, and a good word will make it cheerful. So what is the worry in the heart, and how do you suppress it, and why not share? Okay, good. Good ideas. Good questions. Um, and, yeah, why and how to cast it down. Absolutely. Um, and... 
then on the second half, I would add how does a good word make it cheerful? And you've asked, where do the worries come from? Very good question. And interestingly, the second half reads, and a good word will make it cheerful. And I wondered, does the it in that verse refer to the heart or the worry? Because it says, when there is worry in a man's heart, he should cast it down, and a good word will make it cheerful. Is it making his heart cheerful, or is it making the worry cheerful? So let's start And, oh, and let me add, Naomi, you brought up a good question. In the Art Scrolls version, they said, let a good thing convert it to gladness. Why the word let is used there. Yeah, we're going to have to understand what, what is that second half really trying to, uh, to get at. Um, one seems to be suggesting, one translation, and the translations do, you know, uh, differ uh, from... You know, the different translators, they take different uh, understandings of the facts on the verse. Uh, when we say a good word will make it cheerful, that seems like a factual statement. When it says let a good thing convert it to gladness, uh, almost makes it sound like a suggestion of what to do. Um, so let's see if we can get some clarity around that. But let's start... Um, and yes, we'll have to figure out what's a good thing, what's the meaning of a good thing uh, to convert it to gladness. Let's start by trying to define worry. What do you think worry is? If you have to put a definition on that, what would you say is the definition of worry? Any thoughts on that? So here's a suggestion. I'd like to suggest that worry seems to be the mental process that we go through when we're thinking that something undesirable may happen and we are resisting that possibility. In fact, we could argue that the sheer fact that we consider it undesirable means that we're resisting that possibility. So let's think about that in, in real life. If I think my boss may fire me, may terminate me from my job, and I don't want to get fired, I'm worrying. In other words, I'm thinking that something undesirable may happen, the undesirable thing meaning he's going to fire me, or he might, and I'm resisting that possibility because I'm thinking, ooh, I do not want that to happen. So I have worry churning around. Now, my worry has absolutely no effect on external reality because it's all going on inside my head unless it spurs me to an action. Uh, it has some effect on me, I'll talk about that in a minute, but on an external reality, my sitting there sort of wishing it weren't so or wishing that possibility didn't exist or hoping that that possibility doesn't happen, that's not affecting external reality at all unless it spurs me to an action. So in this case, the worry might spur me to go talk to my boss and say, are you happy with what I'm doing? Or maybe it'll spur me to work more effectively or to work harder or something like that. But now let's take a similar set of circumstances. 
um, let's say that I think my boss is going to fire me and I'm in favor of it. And let's say that, you know, I've wanted to leave the company for a long time and I'm not really happy at my work anyway. And I know that if they terminate me, I'll get a great severance package. They'll, they'll maybe, I've been at my job a long time and so they'll give me three or four months pay instead of just the last month's pay. So I'm actually anticipating being fired. I'd like them to fire me. In that case, I wouldn't be worrying. The same event could happen that I was worrying about before, but my attitude about it right now in this particular case is I'm not resisting the possibility. I'm embracing it. I'm seeing the positives of the outcome. So I'm not worried. In fact, I'm actually hopeful that they fire me. So it could be, it seems like there have to be two factors at work. I'm thinking about that something undesirable may happen and I'm resisting that possibility. And again, we could say that the sheer fact that I consider it undesirable shows that I'm resisting the possibility of it happening. And note something else interesting about worry. Worry virtually always takes place in the future. We get worried about what may happen. Something that hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. So when I start worrying, I'm thinking about something that could happen. Oh, what if I lose my job? I won't have enough money to make my house payment. Uh, I won't have enough money to provide food for my family. All that is, is looking into the future. It's not something happening in the present moment. It's in the future. So worry takes us out of the present moment and puts us in the future. And in doing so, it destroys our ability to enjoy the present moment because when we're worrying, we're not fully present and appreciating the fact that right now, you know, I have clothes on my back. Right now, I have enough food to eat. Right now, I'm okay. Now, the commentators on this verse suggest a variety of different points. First, <clears throat> they suggest that worry can do damage to yourself. Worry itself can destroy you. And it is my understanding that scientific experiments have shown that you can damage yourself with worry. I know of uh, one case that I read about, a very simple test, where participants were asked to think of words like weak and weakling and so forth, and then they were tested with a strength meter. And then they were asked to think of words like strong, and just think of them in their minds, and then they were tested again. And it's my understanding their scores substantially improved. Same people, using the same limb or hand, and yet just depending on which words they were focused on in their own minds made a measurable difference in the strength that they were able to uh, exhibit. When you, I'll suggest that what you think actually has an effect on your physical body. The effect may be subtle and not immediately discernible, but over time the effects can accumulate and one can become weakened through worry and the weakening 
can make you, uh, as I understand it, susceptible to all kinds of illnesses. So when I said earlier that worry has no effect on external reality, what I mean is no effect on the events that are external to us. The worry could have a very tangible and negative effect on my own health and well-being. The sages also mention uh, that talking with someone else about your worries can be helpful. Uh, and this would be helpful if you pick the right kind of person. Uh, so for a normal person, they seem to be suggesting that just stuffing the worries and bottling them up inside you can cause those worries to overwhelm you. But if you find uh, the right kind of person that you can share them with, that helps you know, give you uh, an outlet for dealing with that. So the first half of the verse seems to be clearly telling us that if we have worries, we need to take active steps to eliminate them or to sidestep them. We shouldn't just keep worrying, but we should take active steps to mitigate those worries. Okay. Peggy, welcome. Great to have you with us. We are on Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. So how do we actually sidestep or eliminate or mitigate those worries? So now let's look at the second half. Says a good word will make it cheerful, or let a good thing uh, convert it to gladness. Rashi says that you involve yourself, or you, what you should do is involve yourself with Torah, and this will change your worry into happiness. Involve yourself with Torah, and this will change your worry into happiness. Now, why would that work? So to illustrate. Here's a very quick exercise. Don't think about pink elephants. Can you do it? Can you not think about pink elephants? Usually what happens if someone says, don't think about pink elephants, what does our mind immediately do? It comes up with a picture of a pink elephant. So how do I stop thinking about that? Okay, so now try this. Think about a vegetable platter filled with green carrots. Carrots that aren't orange, but they're bright fluorescent green. So do you have that in your mind? Ah, but you're not thinking about pink elephants now, are you? See, you're not thinking about pink elephants while you're thinking about green carrots, but as soon as I say pink elephants, then the image pops back in your head. And so what I'll suggest is that I think rather than combat the worry directly, Rashi is suggesting that we focus our attention elsewhere. It's very difficult to not think something but it is much easier to think something else or think about something else. And where would be the very best place to focus our attention? On the truth of Torah. And by doing that, we're focusing on real ideas. And that takes our mind off of our worries, which, importantly, are just fantasies anyway. We are, because we're thinking about the future, we are fantasizing and often doing what's called catastrophizing. We are imagining a catastrophe about the future. 
we're imagining something really bad. It is just an imagination. It's just a fantasy. But Torah brings us back to real ideas, and that can also bring us back into the present moment. So a good word, a word of Torah, will make the heart cheerful again. Or, following the Art Scroll translation, a good thing will convert it to gladness. And here the it could be either the heart or the worry. Both of them seem to work in this. The good thing that converted to, will convert it to gladness is words of Torah and getting back into Torah study. If a person is worrying or anxious, the thing to do is to focus on Torah study and get your mind focused in that world of ideas, the world of thought and reality, the world of true ideas, and that takes your mind out of the worry, brings you back into the present moment, and engages you in realistic thinking. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, in that case, we will stop there for this evening.